Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 174 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this first Bar Cart Foundations episode of 2021, where we take a deep dive into one very specific aspect of spirits and cocktails so that you can walk away from the episode with a veritable crash course in the subject matter. This episode is actually pretty special to me because I've been dying to do a deep dive on what you might call geographic designations or denominations of origin. Kind of sounds boring, right? Sounds pretty legalese and bureaucratic. And, you know, it's in some respects it is. There's no way to make government-mandated label claims sexy, right? But in another sense, if you can zoom out far enough and take in these debates from the 35,000-foot view, there's actually a pretty simple set of forces at work. And those large-scale trends are precisely what we're going to focus on in this episode. Initially, when I asked myself how I could best present this topic to our listeners, I thought, man, I really need to wait until I can assemble an entire panel of experts because there's no way I could present a nuanced, finely detailed picture of the topic. But then I realized, well, we don't need that. Over the past 170 episodes or so, I've acquired some great sound bites from really well-respected distillers about pretty much every aspect of the geographic designation or, put differently, geographic indication process. And so I figured that instead of assembling a live panel, I'd put together these clips for you and try to explain what they can teach us about the process of regulating spirits by drawing imaginary lines around where and how they're made and correspondingly what they're called when they appear on cocktail menus or liquor store shelves. But before we do all that, let's take a moment, and I do mean just a moment in this case, so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Stinger. To make it, you'll need, very simply, two ounces of cognac and one ounce of creme de menthe, which is, of course, the iconic green mint-flavored liqueur. That's it. To mix this drink up, all you need to do is combine your ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake it vigorously for just a couple seconds, to be honest, right? There's no citrus in here. There's really not a whole lot of aeration that needs to occur. Uh, And so once it's, you know, nice and cold, you just strain it right into a chilled cocktail glass. This drink is actually a pre-prohibition classic, often served as an after-dinner digestif, which means that If you'd like to garnish it, well, just take the lead from the creme de menthe and add a nice, gently activated sprig of mint. I felt like cognac was appropriate to feature in this episode's cocktail since it's one of the most well-protected geographical regions when it comes to spirits production, but cognac itself is a topic for another episode. So with that, let's dive right into this Bar Cart Foundations episode on geographic indications. 
The main problem I encountered during the early phases of researching this topic is that it's really hard to pin down exactly what to call the thing we're talking about here. When you come across signals of geographical indications on physical bottles, they almost always have different and foreign sounding names. The French Appellation d'origine contrôlée, for example, or the Italian Denominazione di origine controllata e garantita. A mouthful of words that almost requires a mouthful of booze before you even attempt pronunciation. Floating around out there are also terms like denomination of origin, which I mentioned earlier, protected designation of origin, and a bunch more besides. These terms all have different shades of meaning, but basically what you need to know is this. At some point, some group of people came together and said, in this precise accent, mind you, hey, I heard that someone's making some cheap knockoff version of the thing we make and pretending it's genuine. We can't have that. It tarnishes our collective name. So let us band together and create a set of rules that establishes quality and it can help consumers distinguish between a genuine product and a cheap reproduction. Definitely exactly in that accent. Now, embedded in this conversation that has taken place in many locations around the world at many different points in history, but in that same accent, are a few assumptions. Namely, one, there's something special about our product that can't be reproduced. Number two, some part of that specialness resides in either the land or the time-honored practices that generate the product. And number three, therefore, anyone who uses our name for this product but makes it somewhere else or using different methods or materials is violating both our heritage, right, there's a personal offense, and the cultural intellectual property inherent in our genuine product, right? There's more of a sort of legalese bureaucratic offense there. Out of this somewhat predictable and often repeated series of events generally arises the impulse to regulate agricultural fermented distilled or otherwise grown and manufactured products that originate in a specific region. Classic examples include pretty much any recognizable wine or cheese product from France or Italy, including Champagne, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Barolo, Chianti, Roquefort, Camembert, Parmigiano, Reggiano, and many more besides. Those are all protected classes. The French and Italians are very good at protecting their food and drink products. But then, when you get into the spirits world, you see lots of geographical indications popping up around the world in pretty much every spirits category. Whiskey, brandy, rum, agave spirits, and yes, even gin. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the difference between a geographical indication and a protected denomination of origin, and partly that's because I'm really not qualified to, but that's okay because you don't need a law degree to understand the large-scale forces responsible for creating the current regulatory landscape that affects what is available for you to drink wherever you may live in the world. So think of this episode as a survey course in geographical indications with lively cameos from the absolute best of our previous podcast guests. First up, let's talk about the constraints that some regions choose to place on where a spirit is made and what materials are used to make it. Peru was the vice royalty of the Spanish crown, and that is where all the um, merchants came all the um, missionaries landed, and all of the king's advisors were running 
all of um, South America. So if you think about it, all of the immigrants that came to Peru were coming with their grapes. So we have such a vast variety as opposed to neighboring countries that don't have as much indigenous grapes um, for their distilled spirits. So in Peru, we have eight different types of varietals. We've got the um, Quebranta grape, which is very similar to the Mission grape. Uh, again, the Spaniards bringing over um, that same grape family um, to the Americas. And we've got the Muscatel, we've got the Torontel. We have the what we call Italia, but it's another version of the Muscatel. And we've got the Moyar, which is the Negra Mol in terms of its um, name. And then we have um, the Uvina grape. So all of uh, these grapes are, are this potpourri, um, cornucopia of delicious flavors and, uh, and taste that uh, you'll get to see in the concentrated in the spirit format. That's Melanie Asher, founder of Machu Pisco, describing some of the different grape varietals that can be used to create Pisco in Peru. And compared to makers of other types of spirits, having half a dozen or more different variants for your distillate base might seem like kind of a luxury. But the Pisco denomination of origin also has some pretty strict geographical and process-related rules that balance out the bountiful grape varietals permitted in the bottle. Now, sometimes this restriction of materials is a product of negotiations between interested parties who might have historical opinions about what grapes should be used in a particular brandy category. And other times, in other places, it's Mother Earth, who is responsible for drawing the line. Here's Effie Panagopoulos speaking about her innovative Mastica, Cleos, and its indivisible ties with the Greek Isle of Hios. The Cycladic Islands, most of the Greek islands sprouted a volcanic eruptions eons ago. So you're talking like super mineral rich soil. Um, in fact, so the kind of bizarre thing about Mastica, besides 3,000 years of, of history and so many fun facts and anecdotes is that the trees grow only in the southern part of the island. They don't grow, like they planted them in the northern part of the island and the trees grow, but they don't produce the same aromatic sap. Hmm. So in the Masticojoria, the scientific reason they say that the trees only grow in the southern part there's like three reasons one being the terroir and the position of these villages in relation to like this mountain range um so the the mountain range kind of shields the trees from wind and rain and it's pretty dry and arid for the majority of the year there because the rain will ruin a whole harvest it will wash it away right so there's that I've asked the Growers Association if they've done a mineral soil analysis and like, you know, they're not giving up the goods um, and they will not grow trees in a, in a greenhouse. Um, the cultivation of mastica has also been honored by UNESCO. It's on its list of intangible cultural world heritage. So this is something that is done 100% by hand. There's nothing automated about the process. There is, it is t totally organic, fair trade, sustainable, all of those things that the modern consumer is looking for, except that nobody really knows about this. I call it Greece's best kept secret. 
So there's that, there's the terroir, and then there's, you know, what they attribute to eugenics. Over time, the ancient Heans were picking the best trees that gave them the most resin to repropagate. And you replant a tree from the branch. There is no seed. So you just cut a branch, stick it in the ground, five years that will mature to, you know, being a mastica tree that you can cultivate. Um, a tree's matured around 20 and then they're old at around 100, right? But there are very, very old trees. Um, and the harvest is only from July until uh, September, July 15th till the end of September. You know, sometimes when I think about a spirit as a masterpiece or a work of art, I'm reminded of that trope about the artist standing before a block of marble and knowing that the sculpture is already in there. It's just a matter of taking away all that excess. This in essence, is one of the positive effects of constraining materials in a spirit. You're effectively telling a distiller, here's what you have to work with, now go to town and show us what you can do. And as we just heard from Melanie and Effie, that instruction can come in the form of a written regulation or it can come from the fact that your agricultural input refuses to grow anywhere but in a specific area. But once your inputs have been selected, there's still a lot of regulation that can occur at the process level of manufacturing a spirit. Here's a clip from distiller R.B. Wolfensberger about some of these rules in the vodka world. I love the standards of identity that the federal TTB, the government, lays out to us and the rules that we got to play by. And I, I think it's, one, it's necessary because if you're a distiller, then you probably have a little bit of a wild side to you, so you need some regulation and some standards to play by, or you're just gonna have stuff all over the place. But the, the actual regulation the TTB puts out is it must come off your still at 190 proof or greater, so 95% alcohol, and it must have neutral character. And I, I love that regulation because what's neutral to me might not be neutral to you. Or neutral by comparison yeah, to, to something. Others. Yeah. You know, they kind of, they, they leave that very vague and I love that because it gives me that freedom to say, even though my vodka has character and it has flavor, to me, it's still pretty neutral. Now, it's important to note that this interview was conducted several years ago, and the TTB has recently amended their definition of vodka so that the whole neutral thing isn't nearly as stringent or exclusive. Now, you still have to distill up to 190 proof. That hasn't changed. But... There's a lot less funny business when it comes to allowing flavor to shine through in the product. To me, this shows that although geographic indications and other process-related regulations can truly feel restrictive, we, we do have the power to influence them, right? The TTB isn't sitting around bored saying, hey, you know, we should really take a second look at vodka. No. This change is absolutely due to calls for reform from producers and consumers. And this begs the question, who has the power to make or modify geographic indications in spirits? And what does that process entail? Here's Matt Petrick's thoughts on both the recent surge of geographical indications in Caribbean rum producing countries, as well as the economic forces that underpin a country's ability to have its rules recognized and respected elsewhere in the world. It's, it's common for people to say, you know, writers in particular to say, well, rum has no rules. It's like, well, no, rum has plenty of rules. Uh, go to Cuba, they have rules. Go to Martinique, they have rules. Go to 
go to you know, Guyana, they have rules. Go to Jamaica, they have rules. Uh, Barbados is working on um, their own um, uh, geographical indication. There's plenty of rules. But what most people don't realize is that like you can make a rule and it, and it, it, it works in your country, but it doesn't just automatically work in every other country. So the, fa- the fact the fact that, for example, in America, we recognize Scotch whiskey as a protected category is entirely the result of, of you know, American and, and American Scotland agreeing like, hey, this makes sense. <clears throat> like, we'll, we'll recognize your Scotch whiskey in exchange for you recognizing <clears throat> like American bourbon and that, you know, you're not going to let, you know, a Mexican whiskey be sold as sold as bourbon in England. So there there are there are higher level sort of geopolitics and trade trade discussions that go involved into getting your GI or your rules uh, recognized somewhere else. And rum is in the unfortunate position of most of the rum producing countries. Uh, Again, like Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, Guyana, they're relatively small on the world stage. And so, they absolutely could be protected, uh, you know, in the United States or in the EU, but they really, you know, you take the steps to get them protected. It does, it does, doesn't just come for free, but, you know, I think the first step is just getting these rules in place that realistically, uh, the regulation, the first earliest rum regulation of this form I'm aware of is, is only from 1996, which is the original Martinique AOC. And it's only since then that, like, we've seen, you know, the Cuban, the Cuban, uh, uh, I think it's the DOP, uh, Martinique AOC, um, Jamaica was in 2016, I believe, uh, Barbados is still in flight, uh, Guyana was 2017, I believe. <clears throat> there are these rules out there, but, but they're all fair, fairly recent and they all, and they have a lot more to go before, before, you know, you can hope that anybody in the EU or in the US is going to say, wait a minute, that's not really Jamaican rum. It was made in Panama, for example. Right, right. Well, it seems like progress is being made. So that's, that's, um, I don't know if it's a good thing. It seems to be a neutral thing. People are regulating things. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. I guess we'll see, you know, how it gets handled. But, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the thing to notice here is that obviously, as you noted, these, these places, are low leverage places, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for home consumers listening there, one way to give these places more leverage is to ask for their spirits more often. Yeah, for Um, sure. Absolutely. You know, and another, another thing, again, they can do is work collectively work together. Like if you get a, a, you know, enough countries in the Caribbean uh, to work together to, to actually say like, hey, we're going to go to the U.S. and we're going to say, we want you to recognize all seven of our GIs, for example, and an exchange will recognize, you know, bourbon or what, whatever you know, negotiated deal you make up is, they'll have more leverage doing that. And again, there are organizations like, like uh, Caricom or Worspa, who I who I mentioned earlier, who can help coordinate these sort of things. Now that we've covered most of the basics. And when I say basics, I mean bare, bare basics. It gets real complicated, like I said earlier. But now that we've covered all those basics about geographical indications, it's time to transition from being merely descriptive into perhaps a little bit more of an evaluative mindset where we present some possible stances you can take relative to the regulations we've been talking about. And before I give you these last couple clips here, 
want to explain how I think about the rules in the spirits industry and whether they're good or bad. When I walk up to a rule, you'll notice me use that phrasing a lot. I actually use it when I'm talking about a bottle of spirits as well. Like I, I say, when I walk up to this bottle, um, it's, it's very much a beginner's mindset. So when I walk up to a rule, right, not trying to make any assumptions, I ask myself, who does this rule benefit from a financial standpoint? And there can be more than one answer to that question, but there's almost always one answer that's best or most apparent. So I go with that one. The second question I ask is, well, who's this rule protecting? And that too generally yields a pretty clear answer. In most cases, rules are in place to protect the people who make the spirits or the people who consume them. So it's, it's, it's often pretty cut and dry. Once you have these two pieces of information, it's generally pretty easy to understand if a rule exists to protect people who actually need protecting based on some prior circumstances where someone was hurt, for example, or if it exists to maintain a status quo that benefits a few very large or wealthy interests. A great example of this is agave spirits, where the Mexican government has come in and said, hey, from now on, you can only call it tequila if it's made in this specific region using this specific type of agave. And at the time when this regulation came out, it seemed like a great thing for American drinkers because now we didn't have to question if something was quote-unquote real tequila or some cheap mixto. If it said tequila on the label along with 100% de agave, you knew without a shadow of a doubt that you had something like a genuine article. But since then, the Mexican government has also taken ownership of the word mezcal in a sort of trademark-like fashion, and that has had real consequences for people who have been making traditional agave spirits all over rural Mexico for generations. Here's Lou Bank and Chava Pettibon from the Agave Road Trip podcast with their takes on why this government ownership of the word mezcal isn't necessarily a good thing for distillers or consumers. I believe that you should be able to make mezcal in the USA or in India or South Africa, Australia, name it. Same as you can make whiskey. And I know this is never going to happen, but same as you can make whiskey anywhere, not just in Ireland. Um, I think I think mezcal should be the name of the category. And it can't be now because it's it's owned by Mexico and they decide this is and this is not mezcal. And and, you know, some people think that my view of that is I'm trying to take something away from Mexico. But in fact, my belief is if you can make it in the USA, in India, in South Africa, and call it mezcal, that all of these families in rural Mexico who either because they don't have the financial means or because they are geographically undesirable, according to the the, the CRM, they could then use that word as well. Mm, yeah. And Chava, you and I actually went <laughs> back and forth a little bit before this interview about the idea of agave spirits uh, being made in places that are not Mexico. What are your thoughts on that? I actually love the idea just because I want to try more things. Probably it's an absolutely selfish uh, perception, but I will really love to try an agave that's growing in the desert of Nevada or that it's growing in Arizona or in South Africa. Like I cannot imagine the type of flavors that are attached to these agaves that have been living through a lot of stress for 10 years around there. So I'm, I'm, I'm there with, and I think it's also, you know, it's a thing for our times. I think we've all become less nationalistic through all this coronavirus process. 
if something, I think that things should travel more. You know, uh, we have this mm -hmm. joke in Mexico. What's the best taco? El taco campechano, which is which is the best taco, the one, the mixed taco that was that has chorizo and all of the other things in one taco. So it's like more is more. Whoever says you know like something <laughs> could, could be just like framed in a golden frame and stay like the Mona Lisa. I mean, I understand it for for the Louvre, but this is spirit. <laughs> <laughs> this is something we drink and it's amazing that it evolves and I want it to keep evolving so I think one of the big ways that it can evolve if, is if it can be produced in other geographical areas so yes listening to this clip I come back to the point I like to make in the spirits and cocktail world about robustness a robust category or industry sector is one that benefits from diversity and this mindset often clashes with a nationalistic agenda that wants to draw a line around a spirits producing region and chant over and over, we're number one, we're number one. It's one thing to have a tradition and to try and protect that tradition, especially if there's some very evident form of jeopardy. But if in the process of protecting something, you end up kind of trapping it in amber so that it can no longer evolve, well, at that point, you've kind of killed the tradition, or at least made it so that it can no longer change with the times. And the thing about traditions is that they're dynamic and sort of contiguous. So if if the version of the tradition that you're presenting today is the same as it was, or you're trying to keep it the same as it was hundreds of years ago, well, it's, it's not really a tradition anymore. You're just trying to reproduce some past version of history. I'd like to conclude this intro level survey on geographical indications by giving the final word to St. George Spirit's master distiller, Lance Winters. Around this time last year, I had the chance to sit down and speak with him about the American single malt category, among other things, which revealed some pretty cool insights about the relationship between regulation and creativity in the spirits industry. Take a listen. Do you have any thoughts on the American single malt category? Um, I have a ton of thoughts. It's probably it's probably one of the places where um, I would butt heads with more people <laughs> than not. Um, there are a lot of people that feel the need to establish regulations for that category. Um, and my question to them is why? I, what you should really be pushing for is just pure transparency on a label. You don't need to have a category. Um, I think that they want to be able to have separate shelf space from other products. And I get that just purely from uh, a, an economics perspective, a marketing perspective. But if that's driving what you're calling something, you, you might want to rethink that. Mm -hmm. I believe that there can be uh, a thoughtfully laid out American single malt category. But I think that it's as a category of things that people are producing, it's still way too far into its infancy for us to be saying, this is, this is what it has to be. I mean, I've been making this whiskey for 23 years now, and I think that there still needs to be latitude for experimentation before we lock it into a box and say, it has to be this, mm -hmm. you know, you think about the, the German beer purity law, the, the Reinheitsgebot, uh, was written in the 1600s. And it listed all the things that you can put into beer and can't put into beer. It basically said what beer has to be. 
nobody had discovered yeast at that point. If you really wanted to follow the letter of the law, you can't add yeast to this stuff. And, and it's like, no, you need to wait until you understand more about this before, before you really confine it. It's probably, I'm probably not putting it as best as I possibly can, but I think that, I think that there needs to be a lot more latitude for, for interpretation, for personal interpretation. Otherwise it's like, it's just a geographic designation for something that's already done in Scotland. Right. And I think, uh, there's a big trend in other spirits categories like rum, for example, with geographic designations and denominations of origins. Um, and I think right now it, it, it almost lines up with the kind of like populist conservatism of, you know, today's zeitgeist to say like, let's lock it down. Let's build the wall so yeah. that, you know, you, somebody on the other side can't call it this. Uh, but I think that kind of goes against what makes a lot of American spirits, especially in the past 30 to 40 years so great is that we didn't have those constraints. And although I do think it's important to recognize that Champagne comes from the Champagne region of France, if it's not broke on our side of the Atlantic. Yeah, I'll, I'll totally give you that. I mean, uh, Oscar Mayer really has no claim to the name Bologna. Uh, it, it, it is a far cry from what you would get for, at a really, really great deli in Italy. But um, I think to your point, and it comes back to the point, uh, a philosophical interpretation of your point about having lots of space. Mm -hmm. As Americans, we have lots of space. And it gives us the wide open prairie. The beauty of it isn't just the fact that here's a lot of land that we can settle. It's like, I can do whatever I want here. This is a blank slate. And that's the way we like to look at a spirits category. It's a blank slate. Okay, there's a there's a material that you have to make it from for it to fit into this category, but that's it. Yeah. That's that's okay. Now let me let me play with this. Let me let me screw it up if I need to screw it up. But let me do my thing. That's the part of it that makes it American single malt. Is the fact that we are. I think it's the best part of Americans is that we are sort of renegades and we do things our own way. Uh, it doesn't always work, but when it does, it's an amazing thing. And, and that's the way I want American single malt as a category to be treated. I wanted to wrap up on this idea about having space and the freedom to experiment because I think it underpins what you might call the American approach to spirits regulations rather than the European approach, right? Folks in Europe have been bumping up against each other geographically for millennia prior to the colonization of the Americas, and that generally reinforces the importance of things like clear borders and very well-trodden rules and definitions. Otherwise, it's hard to get along with other people. But here across the pond, we've got the luxury of a lot more space. And when you don't have a rival grape-producing region right across the river constantly competing with you for prestige, you tend to be a little looser with your regulations, maybe a little bit more collaborative. These last few clips about geographical indications in rum, agave, and American single malt are also very tied up in money and who deserves it. Poor farmers and distillers in parts of Mexico that can't call their products mezcal are a great example of innocent victims who fall on the wrong side of an invisible line as are the scrappy rum producers from all over the Caribbean who have a hard time getting their rules acknowledged by large trade entities like the U.S. or the European Union. These 
are clear instances where people of low status and power are missing out because they have very little influence over commercial activities in the larger world. Where do American single malt producers stand in relation to this? It's a little bit harder to say, but one thing's for certain. The multinational conglomerates who own all those lucrative scotch distilleries probably aren't going to be lobbying for any regulatory relaxations or expansions that allow American single malt producers to gain market share. I'm Modern Bar Cart CEO Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me on this romp through the complicated world of geographical indications and the people and industries they affect. This is certainly not going to be the last time we talk about this, and I know that it was high level. I know it was fairly glossy. So if there's something I overlooked or got incorrect, um, I really hope that you contact us and and give us feedback. We'd love for you to drop us a line at podcast at modernbarcart.com. And if you have the chance, I hope that you'll all Take a minute to learn a little bit about the rules that govern your favorite spirits. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips, and keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, geographic indication knowledge courtesy of Melanie Asher, Effie Panagopoulos, R.B. Wolfensberger, Matt Petrick, Lou Bank, Chava Pettibon, and Lance Winters, and a little bit of patchwork narration by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021. <laughs>